This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. Oh, wrong house. No, the right house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Your son is a maniac. Zachary is not a maniac. Yes, he is. Ellen, why are you saying that? He's a maniac. Look, can you hear me now? You better watch it. They're both horrible. What the hell are we doing here? I hope you're kidding. You think my son is a snitch? I don't think anything. Well, well, if you don't think anything, don't say anything. I'm sick to death of it. We were nice to you. We bought tulips. You know, my wife dressed me up as a liberal. Yeah. Nancy, what are you? Huh? Oh, my God. Way to go! You killed that hamster. What you did to that hamster was wrong. You can't deny it. You're blowing this all out of proportion! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows that Jude Law is one of our finest actors. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with my little apples and pears cobbler, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Uh, good morning, Joe. Very excited to be here today. Correct me if I'm wrong, this is our first sequel we've ever done, right? Our we first... are, of course, talking about the Venom sequel. Today? Carnage, no? yes. Oh, yes. did I watch the wrong movie? Damn. Yes, you watched the wrong movie. You got your advanced, Damn. advanced screener to, uh, to... Is that what the second Venom movie is called, Carnage? I think it's Let There Be Carnage. Oh my god. I can't wait for the goddamn Venom sequel. I cannot even tell you. Bigger fish tanks. Um, uh, more <laughs> weird sexual uh, vibes between Tom Hardy and himself. It's just, yes, Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Um, I was so angry at the Venom movie originally. <laughs> so and fun. I feel like I could come around on it. I think it. you could. I think you could. I don't because I have no concept right now of why I was so mad about it other than that it, I I remember it looking terrible. I mean, it looks grody, but I don't know if I would say it looks terrible. I feel like I'm going to I would maybe draw a line between that. But um The bottom line here is I have no choice but to revisit the movie. Right. Well, now that you've seen the the second one, you want to go back and see what the uh, what all the fuss was about. Yes, I, on the other hand, watched the film we were assigned, which is 2011's Carnage, yes. based on the play God of Carnage, which in France is called Les Dieux du Carnage, which... The movie is really just the peasant of Carnage, comparatively. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you ever... Not even a feudal lord of Carnage. Have you ever seen a movie based on something that you like that makes you question why you liked the original thing in the first place? <laughs> like, that's sort of what this movie did for me, is I really, really loved the experience of watching God of Carnage in the theater. I saw it with 
The original Broadway cast, I just actually looked up in my Gmail to find out when I saw it. I saw it in October of 2009, so it was after the Tonys, which I would have sworn I had seen it before the Tonys. And then mm-hmm. after, they had extended it into 2010, so they let the original cast off for like a month or two to just go and like whatever fulfill whatever contractual obligations they had to their other projects and then they came back at the beginning of the fall and that's when i saw the original cast and it was marcia gay harden uh james gandolfini jeff daniels and hope davis we'll definitely get into it because you also saw that cast yes i did amazing uh just like i mean without even like getting into the movie yet because it's like all of the things that the movie just really fails at um what a fucking fun night of theater Thank that you. like Thank you. you could absolutely like mine it for any more depth than you are just watching this really fun farce or you could just enjoy the farce of it um with like four really great performances yes. each of them really like working in tandem together like um and and the film version is very much not fun and kind of anti-fun and works against itself. And we'll get into what we think of the individual performances because I think a movie like this is very much about the performances. That's really, you don't adapt a a single act, single set play like God of Carnage for any other reason than we can we can cast, you know, we can let four, you know, big Hollywood actors do their thing, which I think is odd. We'll just, all right, let's just get into this part here. It's so strange to me that if you were going to adapt God of Carnage, you wouldn't just let the original cast do what they do because they're already movie stars. They're not the biggest movie stars. They're not like the A of the A-list, but like Marsha Gay Harden has an Oscar. James Gandolfini's the biggest star, like the best actor on television of his entire like generation. Jeff Daniels is a bona fide like film actor and Hope Davis is an indie movie star. And like the movie made two and a half million dollars domestic anyway. So like, I don't understand what making, putting A-list actors did for it box office wise. And if you're going to then recast this cast of phenomenal film-ready actors, it better work, and it doesn't. Like, I would say well, three-fourths of it really, really doesn't. I, I don't think you can blame it for, like, a shift, an intentional shift in tone in the movie, because, like, I don't think it's really going for that so much as it is just, like, floundering in all of the characterizations and, like, the really missing the mark in the like interplay and the inner yeah. dynamics between the four performers on top of like textual stuff that I think that the movie just gets wrong that we can get into. But um, I think the weakness of the performances by and large in the film to me pointed out weaknesses in the script that I didn't linger on in the play because the acting in the play was so good. Mm-hmm. And the pacing in the play was so good. That's the other thing, is the play is this, like, everything's, there's, everybody's moving. Every, the set is changing colors. You know what I mean? Like, it's, there's, uh, there's just a kinetic energy to all of it, a sort of, you know, at times farcical, uh, mania to what's happening with these, this, these characters as this argument escalates. And there's no time often to linger on the, 
you know, some questions or deficiencies or, like, irksome tones or, you know, irksome ideas in Yasmina Reza's play. And then you watch the film, and when the actors are not doing that work to really entertain you that way, and when the pacing mm-hmm. is a good bit slower, you really have time to linger yeah, on that it's stuff. like, to put it in reductive uh, metaphorical terms of like, I guess, modes of transportation, when you're watching the show, it's a roller coaster. Even when like it breaks for these long audience, like laughter beats, uh, it like it still keeps yeah. moving and moving and moving. Whereas like the rhythm of the movie is kind of like uh, lurching public transportation. Um, yes. It. it it's not good. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I w- just we uh, let, we'll we'll set the stage a little bit. So again, with the both of us saw this play. You did. You saw it uh, also. With, again, it must have been in two thousand nine. The same as I did. If you saw the original cast, yeah, I would have um, saw it in the summer. I believe. Yeah, good time to see it. Um, stage stage adaptations like this to film. There's always this sort of expectation that you have to, you know, open it up rather than keep it stage bound, like yada, yada, yada. We've talked about, I'm trying to think of like what other previous uh, movies on our podcast that we did that had this sort of stage to screen uh, sort of trajectory. Like, obviously, we've done musicals, we've done Rent, and we've done Hairspray and things like that. But, um,. We did okay. So, like, Proof is a good example, right? Mm-hmm. Where I think, and it's not like Proof, you know, is all of a sudden like this incredibly cinematic thing. But I thought Proof added to itself, and I never saw the stage play, so I guess it's not that I can't really like make that exact comparison. Proof, the movie, is sort of my was my entry point into it. But even <laughs> from like the video that I've seen. Oh, and by the way, there's no YouTube of anything of god of carnage the only thing you can find on youtube is I like think it got scrubbed montage with like to be music over it yeah and like normally with a play like you're not gonna find like a whole play online unless somebody bootlegged it and whatever but well there's usually promotional alert, but like you could see the barf scene on youtube to can like you because still? a bunch of people put different ver- no not not anymore because i yeah. looked for it yeah um because like people would record different performances to see how they pulled the bit off which is oh. like, it's not that hard yeah to it's a yeah barfing off yeah right hope we all know how that goes uh, right we all know how that works stage. exactly yeah um, she's like digging through her handbag before she even does it she probably shoves something up her sleeve it's fine yeah but normally with the promotion of a broadway play uh especially one of this sort of caliber which you know had obviously a lot of money behind it and and had a lot of tony aspirations and normally you'll get like a clip reel of actual like scenes from the show that you can use in promotional whatever's for your video interviews and whatever and for whatever reason for god of carnage their version of that was sort of a montage of showing a lot of action but you didn't get any dialogue it's all with like music scoring over it and whatever and it's a bummer because like i'd like to go back and watch like marcia gay hard and rip off a scene or just like watch you know one of the big sort of like you know arguments uh argument scenes and it was 
uh, irksome in this age she, that we like, can usually on find James Gandolfini's yes! back yes! at one point. <laughs> she's so I mean they're all so good in it, but she's Marsha Gay Harden rules uh, and God of Carnage. Um, but yeah, this sort of age where I can go on YouTube and normally find whatever I want. Now, when I can't find something I want, I get very frustrated, which <laughs> would have mystified, you know, teenage me who couldn't find anything, who had to like go to the library to get what did I get? Like the Rocky Horror Show soundtrack to like finally be able to listen to that because like I couldn't, it, they obviously, you know, didn't play it on the radio or anything like that. So mm-hmm. now everything is accessible and I'm just annoyed. YouTube bootlegs have gone through phases of things where yes. it was like they would just put it up there and then to like get away with it, it would be like weird spellings of things yes. or like yes. you would use the at symbol for A's so that like you would have to know to search for it that way. And yeah. then it went through people titling videos like definitely not God of Carnage <laughs> Broadway original cast where it's like I know yeah. this is getting taken down and you make a joke out of it and now you just can't find things it, fe- it felt like maybe five or, or so years ago the environment around YouTube bootlegs was a lot more laissez-faire and people like it fe- felt like there was less of an aggressive uh, push to take it all down and now you've, they're all really hard to come by which is too bad because well, there's it's, a whole culture around it, depending on what the show is. So I think that there's some shows that they let it go. Like, yeah. there's a whole, like, dissection and discussion that can keep a musical, like, wicked in the conversation. Because you yeah. have these YouTube reels of, like, 45 alphabas hitting oh, uh, the I've watched one closer notes. I've watched that plenty of times. It's it's so good. Um, yes, you're right. Like, the, the more the sort of, like... so bad. <laughs> Well, the also bad alphabets. Um, but the the you know the theater audience and the the you know intended audience for a production sort of dictates sometimes that thing. But I do feel like the bare minimum is just put a couple of scenes online. Just put a couple of promotional scenes online. I'm not gonna you know spoil my dinner by watching you know two scenes of whatever. And I want to see these actors act again because the whole thing about the production is that's over ephemeral. a decade old. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. Also, that's the other crazy thing, is if you had asked me in a vacuum, and not knowing that Carnage was 2011, so I would then have to backdate the play, but like I would have not have thought it was that early into my tenure as a New Yorker that it was only 2009. I would have thought it was a good bit later. Um, but yeah, wonderful play, wonderful experience. One, you know, one act, like, the film is 80 minutes, the the play might have actually been a little bit longer than that but like definitely a one-act show i had like the second last row in the uh, balcony and (laughs) it was the most uncomfortable seat i've ever sat in in my entire life and i was just absolutely riveted the entire time watching this play i mean like also to kind of set up this movie as like a potential oscar player this wasn't just like a big show on broadway this was kind of a big global show or at least like in european countries where you have like major theater yeah. and film stars in all of the productions of it it wasn't just the broadway cast like the french premiere had isabelle Huppert in london it was janet mcteer and ray fines like you know the as a stage show, it carries a prestige to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real actor showcase, so it's really going to attract. It's one of those shows that's just like, again, four people in a room and let it rip. And you're always going to be able to attract, you know, big theater actors and big performers to 
to do something like that, especially because Yasmina Reza uh, already had a pretty good reputation. She had done that play Art that may have mm-hmm. also won the Tony Award for Best Play, or at least was nominated for it. And, um, yeah. And so there's, you know, you're, the fact that this movie version was able to attract, you know, again, three Oscar winners and also John C. Riley, who's a, you know, major uh, movie star. Unsurprisingly, we should talk, we should do our little caveat about Roman Polanski. Um, this is a film directed by Roman Polanski. We've been hesitant to cover films by the Roman Polanskis and Woody Allens and Brian Singers of the world because we don't, you know, we don't want to talk about those people. And I, not to sort of like, we don't want to be, you know, separate the art from the artist and wash our hands of it. But the other side of it is these films can, you know, speak for themselves. More than one person goes into the work of putting on a film. Just because a film is directed by somebody bad doesn't mean that that film disappears from the culture. The flip side of that is just because you can make a film worth talking about doesn't mean you're not also a piece of shit. So we're not going to really linger on Roman Polanski. Is there anything you want to add to sort of that? But I, It's going to be hard for me to like completely avoid him because I do think that one of the movie's major problems is that it's very poorly directed. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like in terms of like what the text is asking for and like it constantly does these things that like like nope, you don't get it. You don't yeah. get it. You don't get what this is. Um I and agree it's just with- like there's no rhythmic narrative control that would make this funny, that would right. make it, it like you said, it's 80 minutes long. It is the shortest movie we've ever done on this podcast and yeah. it felt twice as long. I I felt the relief of knowing it wasn't going to be uh, that much longer. I don't feel like I do feel like I was sort of like in and out quickly, but I was not satisfied by it. So um, it felt like purgatory. <laughs> but the other thing is, and I agree with you that I don't think this is a well directed movie, and I don't think this is a good movie. And I just don't want to like you know with that caveat, like I don't want to fall into this trap that I do find of people just being like. Well, I'm going to feel okay about this problematic artist by being like, well, all their art is crap. And the thing is, that's not always the case. We're going to talk a little bit probably about mm-hmm. The Ghostwriter, because this was a film that was Polanski's film right before that, which is actually a really good movie. And I think it's valuable to be able to say this piece of art that's really good doesn't change the fact that its author was a piece of shit. J.K. Rowling doesn't have to be a terrible author for her to be a terrible person. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's just like, I think sometimes people feel the need to just be like, J.K. Rowling, I never liked her anyway, and her books are shit. It's like, no, even if her books are good, she can still be a terrible person. Like, it's like that's that's sort of where I'm, you know, coming down. Well, you have like to reconcile what is uh, horrible about them, regardless of how you feel about the text anyway um, right it doesn't right. make it any easier to like uh, grapple with the fact that they've had an enormous impact on the culture regardless of how you feel about that culture that's still uh insidious and awful yeah um, that's also a good point anyway. so anyway we're doing a polanski movie and we're dealing with it <laughs> I mean, like, truly, like, if you want to talk about the movie itself, I think a lot of the problems are Polanski. I also think uh, it, it's some of the performances, and I think they're yeah. most of these actors are miscast. 
but yes, I think that's plot that's the root of it. We'll get into that on the other side of the plot description. But there is miscasting, and then there is also poor performances within the miscasting. But we'll we'll right. definitely jump into that on the other side of the plot description. We're going to be talking about the 2011 film Carnage, directed by Roman Polanski, written by Yasmina Reza and Roman Polanski, based on the play by Yasmina Reza, starring Jodie Foster, John C. Riley, Christoph Waltz, and Kate Winslet, and you know some other. Children at a park in weirdly Brooklyn Bridge Park, even though the play, well, I guess the American version of the play when they uh, transferred it was set in Cobble Hill Park, which to me is is a difference, but probably not one worth lingering on for people we'll who don't live in New York City. We'll get into how uh, precision is important with the text for God of Carnage um, yeah. for things like that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, this premiered at the Venice Film Festival September 1st, 2011, and then it ended up uh, getting a limited release on December 16th, 2011. It ended up expanding to like 500 screens in January of 2012. But yeah, God, not God of Carnage, Carnage. Uh, Chris, though, you are going to be tasked with summing up this movie in 60 seconds. So glad I got maybe one of the easiest assignments ever. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I had to go go through the Byzantine plot of all the King's Men list last week. And you're just look like it's four people in an apartment. They're arguing. Done. Boom. Um, 60 seconds on the clock for you whenever you're ready. I'm ready. All right, and begin. All right, uh, in Carnage, we're following two couples in the home of the Long Streets. That's Penelope and Michael, played by Jodie Foster and John C. Riley. Um, they have over Nancy and Alan, who both of their sons have gotten into a fight. Penelope and Michael's son has had a tooth knocked out or multiple teeth. Um, anyway, they are there to just establish uh, uh, common ground to discuss this fight. Obviously, that doesn't go so well. It starts with niceties and uh, everything until the tensions make Nancy seconds puke all over the apartment um and then uh they end up like kind of disintegrating the niceties and then it devolves further and further until michael breaks out the uh what's it it's not bourbon but they have uh they have scotch and then everybody gets drunk and then it's more and more fighting and blah 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 blah. nothing really comes of the meeting and then we see the kids uh make up on their own regardless of what the parents have tried to do and time with one second to spare. Okay, so the fact that this film—the film, film sort of sopped towards uh, opening the the production up as a film—is it gets bookended by these scenes at Brooklyn Bridge Park, where at the beginning you see the actual incident of you see it, and it's a long shot, so you don't really know the specifics of what led to it, but you see the one kid strike the other one with a stick. And then at the end, you see the two kids and they've made up and it's, you know, oh, you know, how how silly these parents are that they have gone to war over these two kids who have now forgotten about the disfiguring incident uh, at the beginning. And I... I think showing the kids is problem number one. Thank you. I wrote that was my very first note that I wrote down. I think it is right off the bat you're getting things off to a to a bad start because the whole point of the show of the play is that you don't know and you can't know and that's and these parents are all bringing their own perceptions to it. And the audience now being in on the idea that we know what actually happened. We've seen it and they don't puts the audience already at a remove from it that doesn't 
you know, help mm-hmm. what's going on. And just the baseline thing that, like, their children should never be more than constructs yes. Yes. in this. Because, Agreed. like, it yes. is a the play is partly about parenthood and like approaches to parenting and like how, you know, when you are in conflict with another set of parents, like it's almost irreconcilable, uh, irreconcilable regardless of what the circumstances are. But yeah. it's also just kind of about like our uh beastly uh nature as people in terms of like we will never achieve full compromise whether it's with our partner whether it's with an acquaintance like that's the like theme the text of the thing right so to see this act of violence at the very beginning of the movie really kind of weirdly defangs the movie because like there should be, like, a specter of violence over the whole thing. Like, they're meeting because of violence. And, like, you right. could think that at any time one of these people actually does become violent, but they never do, really. Right. Um, And it just, like, that seems like a big thing to not understand about the text. That yes. we shouldn't see these kids. I think the strongest aspect of the text to me, and the text sort of, like, touches on some different things, including, like, sort of bourgeois liberal piety and Mm -hmm. parenting. I think the strongest things about it are when it sort of touches on this idea of this classical masculinity that these two men especially are very, very resistant to let go of when it comes to raising their own sons, that they both still kind of want to instill this... uh, you know physical aggressive macho you know getting your you know get a gang together and you know remember when i beat up this one kid when i was when i was young all this sort of stuff i think that's the strongest stuff and i think that's the stuff that then gets undercut when you cast those two roles with john c Riley and christoph waltz instead of james gandolfini and jeff daniels and i think it that also sort of like gets the whole thing off to a bad start. And it's not that John C. Riley and Christoph Waltz aren't good actors in, you know, different, you know, certain roles of theirs, but like Gandolfini, especially just projects a, a menace, even when he's not trying to, that really, really serves, right. Really, really serves that character. Well, because it's always there and it's always lurking. And John C. Riley projects the exact opposite of that and really has to work very hard to conjure up that menace. And it's never convincing. I don't think in the movie. Well, and also to the point where it's like, I think that character specifically is like, he comes off as a nice guy, but really underneath he's a fucking caveman. I feel like that's one of the actual lines in the show. It is. Um, Whereas when John C. Riley is doing that, it's never believable. And it's like, no, you're just maybe an asshole. And right. like, you're maybe the like worst type of finger quotes, nice guy. Right. Right. Um, when you put him in that role, not saying and, that about John C. Riley. We love him. No, right. Yeah. Show. Right. And then the, the other uh, role there with like Jeff Daniels does such a good job of playing the sort of corporate macho dad asshole character in a way that feels sort of on par with what Gandolfini's doing in the play 
And and mm-hmm. normally I don't think I would be doing this. Well, much. Jeff Daniels uh, came back to the show with one of the later Broadway cast and swapped roles. And I and right and I think that's very telling because I think it shows how incredibly I think plugged into what you know both of those characters are doing. And Christoph Waltz just plays this part like he did uh, in in Big Eyes, actually, that we talked about pretty recently, at this sort of effete remove that feels um irksome but not present you know i guess i i mean his this character's sort of like absence uh from the proceedings when he's on the phone all the time whatever is sort of part of the text but waltz never feels a part of this I don't know, dynamic. this milieu, this dynamic. Yeah, exactly, well, exactly. and I think he might even be... Well, no, I actually think Jodie Foster is the most miscast, but I think he's, like, he's not slick enough. He's not... Um, he's probably the least funny. Yes. It's, you know, it should be more Wall Street-y, yes. I guess, for lack of a better term. It also um, has to be American. Like, and I know the play was originally, you know, in French and set, you know, with... A British and, and and British I think it's British characters in Paris, I think is the original um play, although correct me if Maybe. I'm wrong, somebody. But like i I'm pretty sure that they've changed it with each um yes. production. Yes. Well, I saw a little clip of it. They were being uh the the cast was being interviewed by Michael Riedel for the obviously the Broadway production of it. And they said that originally I think Rissa wanted them to be French and just sort of like to, you know, be speaking in sort of French inflected dialect. And they sort of like shot that down kind of right away. And, um, she sort of had some resistance to it. And Gandolfini has this, the, where Michael Riedel's just like, well, how did she take that? And Gandolfini was just sort of quips. He's like, she was on set for three days and then she was gone. And they just sort of talked about how it was like mostly Matthew <laughs> Warkus, who the director of the play, Matthew Warkus. I mean, I think if you did something like that, it would change the dynamic of the show too, because especially yeah. if you're presenting it to on Broadway it would be predominantly an American audience. Yeah. And this is something that's already about like class and bourgeois type of things. Yeah. Uh, it it would completely change the dynamic of what the audience would receive from it. It's such a good fit for Brooklyn and especially for the like Cobble Hill, Brooklyn Heights types. Do you know what I mean? It's just like that. It's mm-hmm. always surprised me that it wasn't originally written for those, you know, for that demographic because it really, really is an incredibly good fit. <laughs> I think the unfortunate thing is that there are always those neighborhoods in uh, American yeah, cities I think that's, that I think is that's easily right. translatable. Right. Sure, um, of course. Yeah, the bougie white people uh, uh, district. Yes. So talk right. about, you think Jodie Foster is the most miscast. Talk a little bit about that. I do, I, I'm, I'm on the precipice of agreeing with you. I mostly think she performs it poorly. I mean, I think both are true. Um, <laughs> she's the one who probably... I mean, I think Christoph Waltz is the one who's not really bringing anything comedically to the table, and that's partly because, like, you also have to believe that his character is, like, a bully in a boardroom, right? Yes. And you would never... You would believe no. him to be more of a flunky, right? Right, right. Um, I don't know. It's just, like, there's a certain worldliness to uh this character and immodesty to this character that i yeah. think 
Jodie Foster kind of actively works against as a screen presence and as a performer. I feel like she's always relatable. I think she's always very down to earth. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, and then you when disagree. She, no, no, no. I don't think I don't disagree at all. And I think when she tries then to play the comedic absurdities, the sort of like when this show sort of moves into more manic, farcical comedy she just can't seem to modulate it and she goes really over the top and really sort of hysterical and i think marcia gay harden and again as i said i was started to say earlier i normally wouldn't do this much you know compare contrast between you know the uh, a stage cast and a film cast but like my point really, really is, is that like everything that isn't working in the movie and they really should have just cast the and maybe you know they didn't all want to do it but like they really should have just cast the broadway cast if you're going to make this a new movie and let you know more people see it and more people see this production they really nailed these characters and marcia gay harden has such a great handle on um because she can be very sort of like down to earth too, right? She has that sort of, she has those similar Jodie mm-hmm. Foster qualities, but she also has the gear that can really um, go heightened in a way that's believable. And she's just really, she's a more versatile actress, I think, than sometimes people give her credit for. The fact that she could do uh, Harper Pitt and Angels in America and also like, the religious crazy lady in the mist and also the mom in whip it. And also um, obviously like Lee Krasner, which she uh, in Pollock, which she won the Oscar for. And this, while still being sort of like, you know, Marsha Gay Harden at her core, um, I think is an underrated skill of hers. We don't really talk about it that much, but she's so, so good. We do stand Marsha Gay. I don't know. I think Jodie Foster, or at least what I got from this character, was a little bit more, um, like, they're both, it's, the play is also, like, these people think that they're adults and they're civilized, but really they're just as, like, petulant as their children. Right. Whereas, like, her approach to that was a little bit more wounded and pouty and like that kind of self-involved yes whereas marcia's which feels more correct to the text and is funnier yes is like rage like this like the thing that she's suppressing when this other couple is coming into her home and that their child has harmed her child yeah the thing that like the nice veneer of we're all going to do this in a civil way. We're all going to come to agreement together. Right. Is that she's suppressing her want to destroy them. Destroy (laughs) them and destroy their child is the other thing. Yes. Which I also really love. Right. Not that she's like sitting in a corner thinking about what has been like horribly done to her, you know, and that's what I got from Jodie Foster. And in the play, the tensions are really apparent in all of the performances. Like you can tell that there that this is sort of like bubbling under the surface, right? And so there's these like great little releases of tension. There's so many lines in the film that I remember being like, that was such a huge laugh line in the play. And I've talked a little bit about this mm-hmm. before, about how la- like laugh reactions in a play are easier to come by than in film because in a play you're all in a room together. You're all sort of seeking that release as a community. And so 
the laughs are bigger when they come and you're sort of, you know, you're, you're eager for them. And it's harder to do that in a film because you're watching it, you know, alone or everybody's quiet or whatever. Um, well, and there's also the thing of like, you know, the thread of you can't be as big on film as you would be on a stage because you have to fill a whole stage. You have to fill a whole theater. But I don't think that these are, these performances on the movie are like any more intimate. They're still like, well, but also like, I don't, that's not the problem. There's a line where, um, the Christoph Waltz character, Jeff Daniels in the play says, just sort of blurts out, uh, our son is a menace. Which was a big laugh line in the show, as I recall, because it sort of like comes out of nowhere and it's like so blunt and it's so sort of, you know, harsh about their own kid, but it cuts through, um, you know, what everybody's sort of like dancing around. And it's so funny in the show and it lands so flatly in the film. And I think that's emblematic of a lot of that. Uh, you talk about the, the line think... in the play where Gandolfini goes, I am a ca- I'm a fucking caveman, which I don't think is in the movie at all. Um, but it's such a big laugh line because it's, again, it's just like this release of, uh, you know, emotion and tension in the play. And because the energy in the play is so up and the energy in the film is just not at that level. And even when like the puking scene where it's supposed to be really, really, you know, manic and everybody's running around and nobody knows what to do. And the audience in the play is it's going the insane. Valve being released of all the tension, but there's been no tension to... Right release right exactly yeah um you agree with me that kate winslet's the best performer in the film i thought that until maybe the final stretch of the movie kate winslet is not someone who can play drunk very well i did think that but i still think she's the one giving a good performance in the film i mean maybe throughout the movie she's giving the best in terms of like if if the film is going to take this pivot tonally from what the stage show is i think she achieves that the best while still being while still playing to the dynamics and still being like maybe not laugh out loud funny but like haha funny um she seems the most dialed into what the tone should be for the majority and i agree with you that's the least miscast oh by a mile by a mile she's actually really pretty well cast i would think i mean if she was with a jeff daniels i think like yeah would change the movie oh steve jobs pre-reunion i love that <laughs> even though i don't think they were ever in a scene the together thing that steve i jobs. am saying is that when you are a father <laughs> fix it alan fix it um oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, god love god knows i love that performance in steve jobs i'm so we mad not to talk about other uh podcasts here but i'm so mad that danny boyle lost the blank check uh in the blank check march madness i th- still think he's the ideal blank check filmography it's the best mixture of great stuff that. terrible stuff and just like really interesting stuff like <sighs> sigh anyway Anyway, um, no, I think she's good. I think she's the one that, like, maneuvers through the dynamics the best and probably comes ahead Yeah, in terms of, like, her chemistry with everyone else the best. Like, I could kind of conceive this couple, even though I think Christoph Waltz was um, really miscast in a way that I never for a second could believe the couple that John C. Riley and Jodie Foster were giving. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So this is our second 
Kate Winslet film in as many episodes, um, <laughs> which we were, didn't originally want to do, but it, we moved up Carnage because it was expiring on Amazon Prime. So we wanted to. And we didn't want to pay for this. Did not want to pay for it. So I think we made the right decision. But so we talked about all the King's Men last week, but we didn't really talk too much about like Kate Winslet as an Oscar entity. And like her Oscar story is an incredibly interesting one, uh, even as mm-hmm. it. Well, I think also, like, because of the way it crested, you know, and how she did win her Oscar. And we've talked about that, I think, before, about the the ins and outs of how she went from a supporting campaign for the reader to a lead actress nomination. And my theory that she... Gotten hashed out a ton this season um, because of the little Keith Stanfield nomination. Exactly, exactly. But her Oscar story in general begins pretty much right from the beginning. Her film debut is Heavenly Creatures, which is an incredible film debut. She's a teenager. It's a film that gets a screenplay nomination at the Oscars, which is a, which I think is a pretty great achievement for that film, being this sort of like small film from New Zealand with a, you know, challenging subject matter and a, you know, an odd tone and obviously this like very kind of uh queer uh relationship between two young friends at the center of it, Winslet and Melanie Linsky. And it's just a great breakthrough performance for her. And I think if Oscar Oscar voters were more attuned to voting for teenage girls in excellent teenage girl performances, uh, she probably would have been maybe a, hopefully a bigger contender in Best Actress. But the Mm -hmm. very next year, she gets her first Oscar nomination, Supporting Actress, for Sense and Sensibility. She's so good in that movie. Everybody's so good in that movie, I feel like. Um, And I think her proximity to Emma Thompson in that movie kind of elevates her even more in terms Mm -hmm. of her stature. She doesn't win. She wins. She won one of the precursors for Sense and Sensibility, right? Was it SAG? I'll look it up. I wonder if it's actually Baff. It was one of those. It was either SAG or BAFTA because I because the Globe, I think Mira Sorvino won both the Globe and the Oscar. I'm pretty sure Mira Sorvino got all of the stateside prizes. I'd have to refer to my spreadsheet. Um, Hold on one second. Yeah, because Emma Thompson wins the Screenplay Globe. That's where she has that incredible speech as Jane Austen. Oh, which I love. I wrote about that on Vulture uh, this year. No, actually, uh, Kate. We were both correct. Kate Winslet won SAG and BAFTA. And BAFTA. Look for at that. Sense and Sensibility. Um, again, a great performance in a great film. And so then, and she's like, she's still incredibly young when she gets the Sense and Sensibility nomination. And then she goes and makes some pretty interesting film choices among some really, you know, canny uh, career choices as well. But she's in that film Jude. Uh, the Michael Winterbottom film Jude in 1996, mm-hmm. opposite Based off Jude the Obscure, right? Opposite uh, Christopher Eccleston, she's in uh, Hamlet, the you know billion hours long Kenneth Branagh Hamlet playing Ophelia, which is like a really like that's a you know an incredibly among that cast to have gotten the Ophelia role among that cast is pretty uh, amazing for her. And then obviously a little film called Titanic in 1997, uh, her second Oscar nomination. And she becomes the director who didn't want her, who like made cracks about her weight on the, on the set asshole, James, James Cameron. Cameron. 
Um, after making her trudge around in like freezing cold water in a tank of freezing cold water, has the fucking nerve to make a crack about her weight, asshole. Um, but she becomes two time Oscar nominee. Uh, how old is she even in 2000 or in 1997? She's was born in. She would have been 22 when Titanic came out. Because she remember she had that like American Express commercial or whatever where she talked about all the like how old she was when she you know when I was in a ship that uh, that sank when I was 20 or whatever. Um, At 17, I went to prison for murder. By 19, I was penniless and heartbroken. I almost drowned at 20. Then I had my memory erased at 28. And by 29, I was in Neverland. My real life doesn't need any extra drama. That's why my card is American Express. But she also becomes, like, a legit movie star, then. Like, that really, that film, you know, obviously does it all for her. She gets nominated, she loses to Helen Hunt for As Good As It Gets. Then she, again, keeps making these really daring film choices. She's in Hideous Kinky in 1998. She's in Holy Smoke, Jane Campion's Holy Smoke in 1999, which is an incredibly, like, Jane Campion following up uh, uh, the piano and Portrait of a Lady with this very much not, like, the piano and Portrait of a Lady are also, like, sneakily horny slash you know not as buttoned up costume dramas as you think but like holy smoke is just like what if kate winslet went into the australian desert and joined a cult and uh peed in front of harvey Keitel? right exactly um amazing amazing movie really really fascinating she's also in quills which again you know is about the marquis de sade but that's a very sort of like oscar friendly movie she gets a little bit of precursor attention for quills but doesn't sag nominated for it thank you uh, um, I, that was like the first time that it, because the other ones were like indies that didn't really have wide distribution and quills felt like the first time that I was like, ah, yes, the Titanic actress is back doing yeah. whatever. And even that it's still quills. Right. It's still about the Marquis de Sade spreading his feces on the wall in his prison cell. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, you're right. So, uh, SAG nomination for Quills, uh, doesn't quite get the Oscar nomination. She does the next year in supporting actress for playing the young version of Iris Murdoch in Iris. Judy Dench got the lead actress nomination. Um, again, an incredibly well-received performance, her third Oscar nomination. And then into the 2000s, she sort of alternates kind of bad Oscar bait with these really, you know, good performances where like life of David Gale is a disaster. She plays a character named Bitsy Bloom. Uh, probably <laughs> the less said about it, maybe the better, but like it's Alan Parker. It's, you know, it had the stuff of prestige. We will probably eventually at some point do it once we get the stomach to do a Kevin Spacey movie. Um, but fuck the end of that movie. <laughs> oh my God. The twist in that movie is terrible. I don't even want to talk about it. It's so bad. Abhorrent. Um, but then 2004, she's in like, again, Finding Neverland, Oscar bait, whatever. Johnny Depp gets an Oscar nomination. It is such a snooze of a movie. But same year, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, her fourth Oscar nomination. And getting an Oscar nomination for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is maybe the best example of where she was as an actress at that time. We're like, that is not a film that screams Oscar bait to me, right? It's very 
it's quirky. It's got its own sort of like spiky humanity to it. It's obviously Charlie Kaufman sort of, you know, who was obviously a very Oscar-y, you know, had been nominated for multiple Oscars by that point. But it's still a strange little movie. And... Well, it was a March release too, so yeah. like it took. A, it's probably benefited from people having a long time to sit with it or to watch it if they were maybe stuffier Academy voters. And she's so good in it; she absolutely should have won that year. Like mm-hmm. uh, Hillary Swank wins for Million Million Dollar Baby that year. A lot of the talk was Swank versus Benning round two, and meanwhile, Kate Winslet and also Imelda Staunton in Vera Drake, who got a lot of the Critics Awards that year for uh, mm-hmm. actress, but like. Absolutely my pick to win is Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine. She's one of my favorite, maybe my favorite performance of hers and one of my favorite performances of uh, of the 2000s. She's, We're probably coming up on my favorite performance of Kate Winslet. It's hard to say what my favorite is, but it's probably uh, the one we're coming up I don't want to gloss over John Turturro's musical romantic comedy, Romance and Cigarettes, a film I've still not seen, but I would like to because the cast... Oh, did you think I was talking about a different movie? Oh, no, it's Romance and Cigarettes. <laughs> I've never seen that movie either. We don't need to talk about All the King's Men. We did that last week. I'm imagining Little Children is your favorite Kate Winslet performance. I do think so, yeah, because... <sighs> Kate Winslet it gets put in this box, and I think especially uh, with what we're coming up, what the nominations we'll be talking about next or performances next. But like, what she actually I think excels at is like smarter, wordier, uh, more complicated characters in modern-minded. Yeah. Films yeah. like Eternal Sunshine and Little Children. And like Little Children could very easily be this kind of dull, uninteresting. Yeah. Uh, like you've seen this movie before, right? And you've seen it not be very good, but because you have a smart performer. Suburban on like Wii. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just like complicating things in really interesting ways. She's really funny yeah. in it too. Yes, she is. Um, and also, like, that's a very, like, horny, sexy movie that you maybe also wouldn't expect. <laughs> like, she and Patrick Wilson just fully get it on, and it's amazing. And they should. Good for them. Good for them. Patrick Wilson's butt in that movie looks really good. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to throw it Very formative. Yeah. Um, so that's Oscar nomination number five. And I think when we get to Oscar nomination number five, that's when she sort of hits the Amy Adams level of... When's it going to happen? You know, when's she going to win an Oscar? What the hell? She's five times Oscar nominated. Because in 2006, she was never going to win the Oscar that year. A, Little Children was too small. And B, Helen Mirren was not going to be stopped that year. So everybody sort of knew what the score was. But when she got that nomination, there was, there did feel like an implicit kind of like, we'll get you on the next go around, Kate. Like one of those kind of things. And the next go around was two years later. And all of a sudden... (laughs) We go into 2008, and from a distance, Revolutionary Road was the bigger film, but there was always the sense that, like, Kate Winslet's got two movies that could happen. Because Stephen Daldry was already sort of into his uh, Oscar whisperer sort of reputation, right? He had been a Best Director nominee for Billy Elliot. He's a Best Picture nominee and Best Director nominee for The Hours, and... His next movie is called The Reader, and it's about World War II. And Kate Winslet had been on extras and made that joke about if you want to win an Oscar, um, star in something about the Holocaust. You know, you doing this is so commendable. You know, using your profile to keep the message alive about the Holocaust. God, I'm not doing it for that. 
I, mean, I don't think we really need another film about the Holocaust, do we? It's like, how many have there been? <laughs> you know, we get it, it was grim, move on. No, I'm doing it because I've noticed that if you do a film about the Holocaust, guaranteed an Oscar. I've been nominated four times, never won. And the whole world is going, why hasn't Winslet won one? Death, yeah. That's it. That's why I'm doing it. Schindler's bloody list. Pianist. Oscars coming out of their arse. You both, good luck then. And <laughs> it's like it was so it was so incredibly prophetic. And that well and like that little guest appearance was like one of the things was just like this is why we love Kate Kate Winslet. She can, you know, have a laugh at herself. She's secretly pretty funny, yada yada. Um and so it's like this big sort of heavy relationship drama reunion with Leonardo DiCaprio from Titanic and Revolutionary Road. And then the World War II Stephen Daldry picture uh, with Harvey Weinstein backing it up in The Reader. So like, and again, sometimes we go into these Oscar seasons and it's just like, this person has two, you know, two or two or three movies that they're going in. How can they miss? And most of the time it's like, well, because, you know, there's no focus on one of them and it, you know, peters out. And in this one, neither one was backing down. The season would move on and mm-hmm. neither one of those uh, performances was sort of receding to be the the also ran. And then so. Well, and it was also like the battle of wars between Harvey Weinstein and Scott, and Scott Rudin. Rudin too. Right. That's very good. That's a very that's, good point. That's secretly what the story yeah. is behind Kate Winslet's Oscar win. That's actually incredibly true. And then so the Golden Globes happen, and it's just like she's nominated in lead for Revolutionary Road and supporting for the reader, even though she's not a supporting actress in the reader. But Harvey Weinstein and the Weinstein Company knew that she was absolutely getting campaigned as lead for Revolutionary Road, and they didn't want to have her compete with herself, so they put her in supporting. And everybody was like, well, which one is she going to win for? Is it going to be for lead for Revolutionary or supporting for the reader? Surprise, the Hollywood Foreign Press is like, why not have both? And so she wins (laughs) both of them, and then she also wins both of them at the SAG. And that's when it was just like... And I think the SAG Awards happened before the Oscar nominations happened, right? It's always so different every year. That wrinkle, I do not remember. But, like, I definitely... I I remember that whole, like, conversation being in the ether well before the SAG nominations happened. So, actually, the SAG Awards happened, like, three days after the Oscar nominations were announced. Um January 22nd for the Oscar nominations and then January 25th for the SAG Awards. But anyway, it all sort of was happening in the same sort of swirl of of timing. And we've talked about before about sort of our theories about Winslet getting the lead actress nomination for The Reader and then nothing for Revolutionary Road. My theory, of course, is that she got she was in the top 10 of vote getters for both of those performances in lead actress. Yeah. It's whichever one you get the votes for first, right. not what the final number would have been. Right. I definitely think she would have had the votes for both and probably enough to also have the votes for that is um, my theory. supporting actress for the reader. As that well. is my theory. She had enough votes to get three nominations, but you can't uh, get twice in one category and you can't get obviously nominated uh, for the same performance in two different categories. And so the reader got there and first. It's not, for like the reader, 
in actress, lead actress and supporting actress, it's not where you got the most votes. It's where you got the votes first in the tally, in the tally. right? Which is always an- so like she could have had more yeah votes in supporting, but do you think because of tally? Do you yeah. think that they do that in the tallying so that late arriving votes don't matter, so that they don't have to worry about like oh my god these votes didn't come into later, and it's just like yeah well we had already you know reached our tallies by then anyway. Well, they don't count ballots as they come in. They count the ballots all at the same time. Oh, interesting. Well, then I have no idea why they do it that way. It seems an yeah, odd way to do it. Because it's done over basically a weekend. <clears throat> right. Okay. So anyway, she wins the Oscar for the reader. It is um, poorly received by Oscar nerds and Twitter bitches is how I will describe that, I think. <laughs> Pre-Twitter, but yes, Twitter bitches. I don't think it was. I think it was right. early stages Twitter. Anyway, I think by I mean, that would have been early oh nine. Yeah, I think by two thousand eight, I was on Twitter. I think it was very early stages. But oh. anyway, um, I could be wrong. But anyway, bitches of all kinds. Um, and like two of us, there was the sense of, oh, she seems so desperate. She seems to want it so bad, and it's so gauche, and it's so she seems so unchill. Her speeches at the Golden Globes felt very unchill, and. The the before we had all all sort of projected this idea of, and I think that the, the uh, guest appearance on extras sort of f- feeds into that that she was cool about it that she was chill and British and you know she didn't you know care about that kind of thing and all of a sudden we realized that oh no she very much you know cared about this she wanted you know she pretended to the shampoo bottle was the Oscar all those years in the shower they all care about it they wouldn't show up they wouldn't do Thank a you. billion interviews yes. and go to a bunch of luncheons filled with strangers if they didn't want it who cares but this is what's gotten Kate Winslet uh, tripped up this is what got Anne Hathaway tripped up there is this sense of and we do it to actresses most often we want we want these things for you until you seem to want it more than we want it for you. And then we, there's this, a, a switch seems to get flipped. And then, and then I can't remember what well, the funny thing is in 2008, probably the person that most of the people who were being bitches about Kate Winslet would have wanted to win was Anne Hathaway for Rachel getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure there was the Merrill contingent as well, but it was, it was a bummer to me to watch everybody kind of turn on Winslet. And like people didn't like the reader for legitimate reasons for many, you know, legitimate reasons for, you know, topical reasons, but also aesthetic reasons. Bad movie. Yeah. So like, it is uh, offensive. Right. And so when a, a performer wins a long awaited Oscar for a film that we do not feel is of sufficient quality, that is also like backlash material. See also Glenn Close. Um, I was also the, like, very, very small contingent of the people who was bitching because I still think her better performance is in Revolutionary Road. I think it's closer along the lines of the type of thing that I just praised her for that I think she does very well. Um, I agree with you. I don't like Revolutionary Road, but I do think it's the better performance. And I think you're right about that. It's much more in line with what kind of performance she should have her Oscar for. An Oscar for, yeah, it's more in line with what her best work is. Yeah. 
And so, at- not to say she, I don't think she's bad in the reader. It's just no, I don't think she's bad. But she's when I think Kate Winslet, I think of a performance like yeah, that. I agree with you. And so she wins the Oscar, and then she's not in a film for three years. And what's the first film she's in? Next, it's it's Carnage. It's this, and <laughs> it's technically Contagion. Oh, Contagion comes out right in right. Well, you're right. Yeah, yes. that's a fall release. You're and right. Carnage is the very end of the year, but it's also the year of Mildred Pierce, where it's like yes. she goes away for three years. She's uh, you know she deserves a break. You know, so, everybody got like, sick of her because Mil- she was winning too many awards, and then she comes back and gobbles up every award in sight for Mildred Pierce. Which she deserved. Yes, like, she did. I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, yeah, and people were. Uh, I remember when she won the Globe for Mildred Pierce. She gets up there and she's like, "Yes, I didn't think we were gonna win anything." Um, yeah, <laughs> and everybody was like, "Bitch," because they kept blanking. And it's like, no, she obviously has a lot of pride in her work, and she yes. wants the show recognized in some way. Yes, should have been recognized for Todd Haynes, obviously. I agree. Um. But yeah, I, I I did not take offense to that. <laughs> yeah, but no, you're right. Um, that that the Mildred Pierce of it all was the uh, was the next thing. And it, but it's so funny to see it's just like picks up where she left off. Uh, where she left off awards wise. I think she's quite good in Contagion. I think. I mean, again, Contagion yeah. is not a film Everyone's I decided to revisit this year for uh, obvious reasons. A lot of people went the other way <laughs> with Contagion and decided <laughs> and to rewatch it. Don't know why. Year. Don't understand it. Um. And then so her 2010s get odd, where she doesn't make a ton of movies, and then the ones she decides to make, you're like, interesting. So, like, you're not going to make a ton of movies, but you're going to be in movie 43. You're not going to make a ton of movies, but you're going to be in Labor Day, uh, which... I understand her being in Labor Day, but it's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. Yeah, I guess, like, yeah, you know, be in a Jason Reitman movie on the heels of, you know, Juno and Up in the Air fine but then oops surprise you're in the worst jason reitman movie um second worst i think it's worse than men women and children Ooh, we'll get I into do. it whenever we eventually do we that will movie. um at least men women and children has a lot of different actors to keep you uh on your toes and sort of occupied and whatever a lot anyway. of good actors being terrible yeah but it's you know kept me interested I thought I thought Labor Day was powerful, boring. Anyway, we will get into it. We'll make a peach pie. It'll be a whole thing. Um, you also haven't said the worst one. That's like, really, you're gonna make no movies, but you're gonna make the Divergent movies, right? Well, I do feel like for actors of that caliber, I gotta figure there's a pressure to be like, yeah, but like, do can you still make yeah. can you still make money? And she hadn't been in anything that had made any degree of money. Like, that, she hasn't been a lead in anything to make a degree of money in, like, forever in a day, right? So, like, I get that, where she's just like, I need to establish myself as a box office presence so that I can maybe make the kinds of movies I want She got make. to play a villain, too. Sure. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm writing home about the Kate Winslet performance in Divergent. But she's only in it for, uh, oh, she's in both of the movies, right, because Naomi Watts kills her at the mm-hmm. end of the second movie. Spoiler, but I just saved you having to watch the Divergent movies. Um, she's also in a tiny little film directed by Alan Rickman called A Little Chaos that I talk about every once in a while here. Um, it's a, it's a, she plays, uh, a, she designs the, the gardens at Versailles for the king. And it's really, really quite well done. She's very good in it. I got to go to 
the New York premiere of it because our friend and past guest Richard Lawson brought me along as his guest. Uh, one of the two of us sort of accidentally nearly bumped into her as we were like turning around with a plate of hors d'oeuvres in our hand or whatever. Um, and then I kept being like, should I go up and talk to her? And I ultimately didn't. I ultimately was too scared to talk to Kate Winslet. That's the story of my night at the uh, Little Chaos premiere. Um, fantastic score. Never a question for me. I'm not talking to anybody. I'm too scared. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, fantastic score on uh, on that film. Uh, Peter Gregson's score in A Little Chaos. Really good. And then her final uh, to date, uh, her most recent to date Oscar nomination comes in 2015 for Steve Jobs. We've talked about it before. We've talked about it on this podcast. The performance I love her. that I think is so very a performance that has a lot of when you are a father. <laughs> She's so good. Her, I love the roving accent. I love everything. I love. Do everything not talk to me about the accent work. I don't care. I love it. I love I it. Love the performance. She wins the Golden Globe for that because the Golden Globes put both Rooney Mara and Alicia Vikander in lead where they belonged that year, and so uh, Kate had the supporting actress category sort of all to herself, and she took advantage of that. But again, everything after Steve Jobs, it's like you have this like you know, return to an Oscar nomination for Steve Jobs. Everybody, you know, or whatever. It's a, it's a largely very well-received performance and a largely very well-received movie. I remember when I saw that film at the New York Film Festival press screening, I walked out and I think I tweeted, I was just like, well, congratulations to 2015 supporting actress winner Kate Winslet. Because I was like, this is... Uh, she's you know, so she's, good. She's back, baby. Um, but then she moves on. If to, they hadn't given it to her for the reader, she w- could have won for that, and it would have been a better Oscar. It would have been a better. A yes. lot of people will disagree with me on that, but I'm I don't. Right. I agree with you. You are right. But then look at what she makes after that: the dressmaker, which I haven't seen, but uh, it's fun movie. It's at fun TIFF, movie. the one year Kate Arthur uh, varieties, Kate Arthur uh, explained the plot of that movie to me and Adam Vary at dinner, and we were just like wrapped with just like we could not believe uh, uh, what she was telling us about that film. She makes Triple Nine, a film I have also not seen. Uh, that is a the, Russian mob maven type of right, thing. Right. Right. Our um, beloved slash bewildering Collateral Beauty, also in 2016. She fucks Idris Elba on a mountain in The Mountain Between Us. Fuck mountain. She uh, willingly works with Woody Allen in 2017 uh, and Wonder Wheel, the year that the Me Too movement really kicks off. Like, terrible timing there, uh, uh, Kate. And They disband the... Because it premiered at New York Film Festival, yep. they uh, canceled the uh, uh, the red carpet gala for yeah. it. Ugh. Terrible timing. She's not good in that terrible movie, though. No, she's not. Um, she most recently has been in a film called Blackbird, directed by my beloved Roger Michel, who... Uh, we talked about when we did Hyde Park on Hudson, which is not a good movie, but like he's done films like uh, The Weeknd, which I talk about all the time, which is really good. She plays Susan Sarandon's daughter in this. It's not my favorite Kate Winslet performance. I think the best performances in that film are Sarandon and also Lindsay Duncan, but it's a really good movie and you should seek it out. It's probably, if it's not streaming for free somewhere, it's on VOD. It's called Blackbird. You should check it, it out. It was one of the early pandemic 
VOD movies that just got buried because yeah. no one was paying attention. I had seen it at TIFF the year before, but yeah, uh, it, it did not make much of an impression. And then we've talked about Ammonite on uh, both our TIFF episode and our uh, Class of 2020 episodes. The uh, Oscar hopeful that didn't pan out, we will eventually do an Ammonite episode. I still haven't seen it. I heard she's very good. Yeah, I'm excited to revisit that movie whenever we do the episode. Yeah. And then coming up this month, she has she's returning to HBO with Mayor of Easttown. And then uh, y'all laugh, but I'll be uh, I'll be uh, probably the most excited for Avatar 2. Oh, boy. I can't I can't join you there. But um, reteaming with James Cameron is uh, worth, you know, some ink for sure. I just I like I, Avatar, just... Dickie. I, 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 you know, praise you for that. I don't know. So yeah, so the Kate Winslet Oscar story, a really fascinating one. I'm glad we were able to sort of, you know, map it out. I'm hopeful that she returns to the realm of, she's somebody who I feel like by the end of her career should have like 14 Oscar nominations. You know what I mean? It's like, she's, she's that talented. She's got so much career ahead of her. Um, it's funny that she's in a show that is called Mayor of East Town, which is like the most dour sounding title to anything I've ever heard of in my entire life. I love um, that Mayor of East Town is actually set in America. It seems like it should yes. be set on some type of isolated aisle. Mayor of East Town sounds like. In the process like... of being overtaken by waves. Um, she has to like board up her house with her corsets mayor of east town sounds like a town in wales like that's what it sounds like yeah it's just but again i'm excited for the show it looks like you know sharp objects meets Broadchurch, which everything these days looks like sharp objects meets Broadchurch. but you know what i'm into it i'm here for it uh yeah so kate winslet i want to sort of circle back for a second to uh god of carnage the play we talked about it is uh it was a tony award winning play all four of the principal actors were nominated for tony's uh marcia gay harden and hope davis uh in lead actress james gandolfini and jeff daniels in lead actor the tonys don't fuck around with categorization it's you know it's in their bylaws if you're above the title you are a lead um marcia gay harden wins the tony after the uh, CBS producers accidentally put the Chiron for Janet McTeer under Harriet Walter's face and the Chiron <laughs> for Harriet Walter under Janet McTeer's face because they were both nominated for uh, Mary Stewart. And uh, Marsha Gay Harden beats them both and then very graciously from the stage corrects the error, corrects the production error, which I always thought was just like classic. Queen, what an icon. She is, by the way... She was favored to win that Tony, and she is so much more animated and excited winning that one than she was for the surprise of the century when she wins the Oscar for What a Thrill, Pollock. <laughs> it's so fun. That's also so funny to me. I adore Marsha Gay Harden. I would love I to just like too. have a drink with her one day. So um God of Carnage, Tony Award winning play. We've talked about uh as I said, you know, play to uh film adaptations before i had given you a alter egos quiz on pulitzer prize winning play turned films now i want to give you an alter egos round about tony award winning plays 
I took out any of the ones that overlapped our last Pulitzer game, so these are all going to be new ones. So, once again, Alter Egos is the game where I quiz Chris. I give him the names of three film characters. He has to tell me what the actors who played all those characters were in together. The answers to these will all have been winners of the Tony Award for Best Play at some point. Are you ready for this, Chris? I am ready. All right, so your first one... Vernon Dursley, Howard Stark, and Barry Glickman. This is the History Boys. Vernon Dursley is Richard Griffiths in uh, Harry Potter films. Correct. Uh, Howard Stark is Dominic Cooper in uh, one of the Marvel movies. Captain America, the first Avenger. Yes, yes, yes. Also Agent Carter on television. Yeah. (laughs) And who was the third one? Barry Glickman. That is James Corden in The Prom. In The Prom, Boy. indeed. Yes. All right, next one. S.R. Haddon, John Quincy Adams, and Mrs. Robinson. Well, Mrs. Robinson is Anne Bancroft. S.R. Haddon is... <laughs> that is um, uh, John Hurt in Contact. Correct. My what beloved Contact. Name? John Quincy Adams. Is that Hopkins? Hopkins in Amistad. In Amistad. Um, John Hurt, Anthony Hopkins, and Anne Bancroft. I know that this is going to be embarrassing that I don't have this. Um, I will say the film was an Oscar nominee. Oh, it's The Elephant Man. It's The Elephant Man. Very good. Elephant Man. Well done. All right. Next one. Winston Churchill, Mr. Orange, and Glenn Holland. Uh, well, Mr. Orange is definitely a, a Reservoir Dogs person. Uh, Winston Churchill could be a million people, but I will just say Gary Oldman? Yes. Mr. Holland, did you say? Glenn Holland, yes. Glenn Holland, is that Richard Dreyfus? Correct. Okay, so Richard Dreyfus and Gary Oldman, and then Mr. Orange. Is Mr. Orange Buscemi? No. Shemi is Mr. Pink. Cool. Um, Harvey Keitel? He's Mr. White. Great. Um, Michael Madsen? No, he's Mr. Blonde. Okay, you just have to tell me. <laughs> it's, it's Tim Roth in Reservoir Okay, Dogs. so Tim Roth, Gary Oldman, and Richard Dreyfus. What is this dude movie? It's probably from the 90s. I'm pretty sure it is from the 90s. It might be from the late 80s, but hold on. I think it's from the 90s. Is it a mammoth play? Is it like American Buffalo? It is not a mammoth play, but it is a very uh, uh, acclaimed and successful playwright, I will say. Okay. It's very... um, This is from the 80s, right? Oh, 80s. Wait, no, sorry. I'm all over the place, aren't I? Oh, wait, I didn't realize this. Sorry, I... This is the play is from the sixties. The film is from the nineties. Oh, okay. So interesting. Yes, not quite what I was thinking. So this, it's from the sixties. This is an incredibly uh, again acclaimed and prolific playwright who has an Academy Award for uh, co-writing a Best Picture winner. It's not Tennessee Williams. It's not arthur miller 
No. Later, a little later than that. What is uh, this playwright's most? He's like, he keeps, he's still, you know, writing new stuff uh, today. Um, Oh. His most recent play. Hold on. Still working. Oh, he, he also was a credited screenwriter on our second ever This Had Oscar Buzz episode. Really? Yeah. Credited with, wasn't that um pay it forward no no um uh 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 that is tulip fever christopher hampton not christopher hampton um mm, okay who he also did the screenplay adaptation for anna karenina oh my god is it not um so it's a British person. Definitely a British person. Uh, duh, buh, 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 buh. Tom Stoppard? Tom Stoppard. Tom Stoppard was working that long. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Okay, a Tom Stoppard movie with Gary Oldman, um, Tim Roth, and... Um, this, this was pretty much his like first major role work. It was like this was his f- Stoppard's big breakthrough uh, play. The real thing? No, it is an that offshoot. It is what's that? That was in the eighties. Yeah, this is an offshoot of a very famous Shakespeare work. Okay. Huh. Like, what's the most famous Shakespeare work? Oh, um, uh, it's uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. It's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yes, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman was Tim dead. Roth, Richard or uh, Richard Dreyfuss. Yes. Okay. So next one. God. All right. I'm, I especially want you to listen to the name of this first one: Angela McCourt, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Doctor Stephen Strange. Angela McCourt's got to be. Frank McCourt's mother, so Emily Watson. Angela's Ashes, very good. Yes. Um, it tastes like Angela's Ashes. <laughs> <laughs> what were the other two? F. Scott Fitzgerald and Dr. Stephen Strange. Um, well, Benedict Cumberbatch is Dr. Stephen Strange. F. Scott Fitzgerald is that Tom Hiddleston in Midnight in Paris. Yes, it is. This is British. It is Hiddleston and Cumberbatch could be conceivably in a billion things. Um, Emily Watson, though, from a play. From a play. It's and because ter- it's those two actors, it has to be relatively recent, like the last 15 years. Correct. Very correct. Um, it's... Uh, turnaround from play to film was very quick. And like Emily Watson doesn't do stage, so that's not, it's not like it's the fast turnaround was because they just used the right. No, none of the, none of the actors in the film were in the original stage production. It was a best picture nominee. I love it. Woo. 
Okay. A lot of people don't. Oh, no, no, don't, no, no, no. But I You love it. That's do. the biggest hint. It is Warhorse. It is Warhorse. My beloved Warhorse. Okay. Amy March, Mark Antony, and Irina. Okay. Uh, well, Amy March could go a bunch of different ways. Is it Kirsten Dunst and then is it Bachelor? No, it's not Bachelorette. That didn't win a Tony. Um, it did not, unfortunately. So it could be Florence Pugh. It could be Samantha Mathis. Florence Pugh, I don't think, has been in a play adaptation. She has not. So I guess it's Kirsten Dunst or Samantha Mathis, probably. What are the other two? Mark Antony and Irina. Is it? Elizabeth Taylor didn't play Amy March, did she? Didn't she? Is it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Elizabeth Taylor did play Amy March in a in a oh, version of okay. Little Women. Mark I, Antony. That's the one I haven't seen. <laughs> yes, nor, nor I. Mark Antony is... Uh, Richard Burton and Julius Caesar. Uh, and Cleopatra. And Irina uh, it was the only... Uh, I tried to find a... a a character name recognizable for either George Siegel, may he rest in peace, and uh, Sandy Dennis. And the only one I could find is Sandy Dennis was in a Three Sisters movie. So she played mm. Irina. All right, next one. Christy Brown, Joe March, and Georgia O'Keefe. Well, Christy Brown is um, Daniel Day-Lewis and My Left Foot, Correct. Correct. Which brings Joe March to either be Sersha or Winona. I'm going to say it's Winona because I don't think Daniel Day has done a lot of play adaptations. Or, I mean, um, Sersha hasn't. But the only Daniel Day movie with Winona that I can think of, unless there is one that I'm forgetting is age of innocence, which is based on a book. It's not the age of innocence. You are forgetting something. Oh, okay. Um, good. Um, yeah, they did reunite for something, but what the hell was it? Um, what was the third name? Georgia O'Keefe. Okay. Who played? Georgia O'Keefe in something. There's not like a Georgia O'Keefe bio. Is there a major Georgia O'Keefe biopic that I'm it, forgetting? It was on television. Ha. Uh-huh. The so, director of this film also directed one of the earlier answers in this round. I'm so like behind the weeds <laughs> that I can't even remember what that was um this was an awesome oh no 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 they did they were on the same damn poster together it's the crucible let him have his name it is the crucible yes all right Duh. next one margaret thatcher albus dumbledore and bofield nutbeam um that would be meryl streep as margaret thatcher yep uh albus dumbledore i'm gonna guess is jude law Yes? No. No. Okay. So 
Michael Gambon? Yes. Meryl and Gambon. Uh, and the third name was something bizarre. Bowfield Nutbeam. I'm not going to get that. Um, you're not. Get Yeah, you're not. Trying to think of Michael Gambon, and all I can think of is the life and death of John F. Donovan, where he plays some type of gay ghost. <laughs> um, uh, this is a Merrill movie from the late 90s. Oh, okay. Well, that's helpful. Not music of the heart. Not one true thing. Um, not the bridges of Madison County. Um, uh, what was, um, 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 I'm trying to think. I know Lunaza is, Dancing at Lunaza is a play, but I don't think it was a best, it was a Tony winner. Wasn't it? Is it Dancing at Lunaza? It's Dancing at Lunaza. Yes, very good. Really? I thought that was like an off-Broadway thing. Uh, it not. won the Tony Award in 1992 for Best Play. Um, uh, Bowfield Nutbeam I just included because that is the Reese Ifans character in, of course, The Shipping News because everybody in The Shipping News is named something <laughs> fucking crazy. That's a stupid name. Fucking crazy. Bowfield Nutbeam. Get the hell out of here, Annie Pruel. All right, last one. Leo Bloom, Wilbur Turnblad, and Betty Lou. Harvey Firestein for Wilbur Turnblad. Um, Leo Bloom is Matthew Broderick. Is this like Biloxi Blues? It's Biloxi Blues, but you were wrong about Wilbur Turnblad. It's not uh, Harvey Oh, Fire. is it Travolta? No, it's uh, Christopher Walken. Oh, I just, I only focused on the Dernblad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Leo Bloom is Matthew Broderick in, uh, obviously, The Producers. Har- uh, Christopher Walken is Wilbur Turnblad in Hairspray. Betty Lou is the only name I could find for Penelope Ann Miller. That is her character in The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag, which is another film I only know as a title. I should do, like, a film festival of films I only know as a title and just, as like, titles. watch them all. That'd be a fun project maybe this summer when uh, when things are quiet. All right. Next one. Polly Perkins, Don Diego de la Vega, and Jack Twist. Uh, Jack Twist, Jack Nasty, um, Jake Gyllenhaal. What were the first two? Polly Perkins and Don Diego de la Vega. Okay. I think Jake's going to be the best way for me to get what this is what has he done that's been based on a play mr dylan hall fashions himself a theater actor now <clears throat> indeed he's reportedly very good on the stage yeah he is from what i've seen i was in a play and i can never remember the title of it but where they uh flooded the set at the end of it and oh it was very fascinating it was like a living room oh, wow. that gets like flooded okay so jake Gyllenhaal, not Obviously not Brokeback Mountain, not Nocturnal Animals, not Nightcrawler, not um, Wildlife, obviously not End of Watch. But he's also third, so he's not going to be the lead lead of whatever you're giving me. Not right. Zodiac. Oh, it's it's got to be um, 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 Proof. It is Proof. 
Polly Perkins is Gwyneth Paltrow's character in Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow, another film with insane names. Uh, And then Don Diego de la Vega, any guesses? Uh, It's Anthony Hopkins in something where he is playing Spanish. It's The Mask of Zorro. Uh, It's his character's name in The Mask of Zorro. Oh my god, I love that movie. So yes, he's playing uh, Mexican in that movie. So back to the film at hand. We are talking about Carnage. We took a bit of a detour there. It's fine. Um, this movie got such a better Rotten Tomato score than I ever could have imagined. It just got so, like this is the one thing that we should maybe say about the Polanski thing is like people were still even talking about Polanski is maybe the only person that we still kept it in conversation when like horrible shit has come out about them. And it's maybe never gone away for Polanski, but like still releasing movies like people like Mark Wahlberg got it buried, like their bad behavior and like whatever, but like it never went away for Polanski. And it's like, and yet we're still kind to this movie. Well, remember when Polanski won the Oscar for the pianist in uh, 2002 and there was like at least a partial standing ovation. He's not there, obviously. He can't come back into the United yep. States. Um, there was, a, I feel like the way that we conceived these kinds of things, these kind of celebrity scandals, where I think back in that era, the thing that was prized and prioritized was separating the art from the artist and also um, that, you know, someone that someone's work stood aside from any kind of other considerations and they would all these other considerations were sort of lumped in this like what roman polanski did was sort of lumped in the same bucket as like hugh grant picking up a hooker like that kind of thing where like there was no differentiation there was no investigation everybody just sort of decided that like oh like let alone he was convicted and what he he escaped was his actual jail sentence that was coming right like and it's a terrible look on Hollywood as you go back, but like it's a very instructive in terms of how the sort of social mores of Hollywood have changed in the ensuing years, where now that kind of like it's the complete opposite. And there's been a, you know, social awakening. And what, you know, is that good PR? Is that a change in the way people are thinking? I want to say it's a little bit of both. I would like to think that at some point people sort of were able to take a step back and be like, what exactly are we rallying behind when we rally behind somebody like Roman Polanski? But anyway. Well, and like to this specific movie's point, like the positive Rotten Tomato score, I just want to be like, what movie did you watch? Even aside from the Polanski things, because like we're also two people who did see the play. And like, I'm curious to hear from somebody what they think about this movie works if they haven't seen it. Because like, I think regardless of knowing what the play's experience, you're right. Like you said earlier, it's very easy having seen the two to compare them. Yes. But at the same time, I still think there's just like real problems. Like the movie begins in the way that they stage it. And it's not scripted this way necessarily that like they resolved what they're there to do. And then they go in the hallway to go down the elevator and then they still go back into the house. Like it puts them back into this home several times. And like, I know even in some of the reviews of the stage show, there was like, why wouldn't you just leave right. <laughs> notices at, at certain points? But like, I think the play does get that balance right. Or like, 
Well, puts and it's, it in this almost slightly abstract world where it's like, yes, if you as an audience member get past that, like you don't even think about it. But this movie asks us to think about it from the very right. opening moment, and it's like. It's able to be a lot more insidious in the play, which I think is much more effective. In the film, you were always conscious of the fact that, like, A, it's like the setting sun outside, like the day is getting darker and darker. But yes, every single time they keep trying to escape this apartment and they get, you know, they're at the elevator and, like, two or three times they have to, like, let the open door of the elevator shut. And like they get every time and that they go back into the house is for a reason that you as a person would not go back into the house. Right. Like the right. first one is like, oh, do you guys want some coffee after you already have your coat? You're on. right. You're already leaving. And it's like, yeah, I do yeah. want a coffee. Whereas Starbucks when I get out of here. Right. Whereas in a play, we're much more accustomed to things like plays happening in one room. Right. So like it's not mm-hmm. as uh, jarring. And also, so the set of the play as the play goes on, the lighting, the backlighting along the back wall of this living room that they're in gets progressively redder and redder. Like the lighting on it, like very sort to the point where you start to notice it and then you're just like, was it always that red? Like what is it's just, you're at least like that was my experience when I just was just been like, you know, you start to uh, and then you and then you sort of slowly realize the kind of surreal surreality of that aspect of what's going on. And then the, it becomes more oppressive and it becomes, you know, as temperatures get hotter, like the, the lighting gets, you know, more and more intensely red. And And there's nothing included in the set design that doesn't get smashed, obliterated or destroyed at some point. So it's like all the books get puked on the the flowers get smashed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The the tulips really take a beating. Um, the tulips are so funny in the stage show because like they're like referenced more pointedly and it's just such an afterthought in the movie. Well, and Hope Davis really goes like Kate Winslet actually does a pretty good job with that of just like, but it's not built to in any way. And it's again, you don't get that release when that happens in the stage show. Again, like the audience is just like losing their minds at that point. It's a really great audience show. Like the, the experience of watching that is just like, it's a lot of fun, but reading a lot of the reviews, we talk about the 71% Rotten Tomatoes rating, which is insane, but almost all of the reviews, the positive reviews were this sort of like hand waving kind of just like it's 80 minutes. It's Roman Polanski. It's these four, you know, A-list actors. What do you got to lose? Kind of a thing. Like Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. And I don't think said anything particularly positive of it in his entire review. And um, so I think it was a lot of that kind of thing where it was this very, it was a 71% Rotten Tomatoes, but there was nobody who was like championing this movie. Yeah. Even though it did get two Golden Globe nominations for both of the actresses, which if you are, you know, an A-list actress in a musical or comedy, the Golden Globes are going to take your call. <laughs> like the Hollywood Foreign Press is going to take your call, as we have learned. The thing that more vexed me, it got a Boston Society of Film Critics Award for Best Ensemble, which is real stupid. <laughs> it's just, it's I not a Best Ensemble. Most of them are actually well, pretty bad. I mean, I guess it's flashy, but you're also talking about a year that includes Bridesmaids, that even includes yes. things like The Help, you know, where there's, like, just as, uh, well, I guess those aren't as, like, A-list starry in terms of where we were in 2011, but it's like, there are other options. You could pick another movie. Even if you want to go with, like, stars being huge, you could do, like, The Ides of March, 
Right, exactly. Margaret is that year, which was the runner-up to the Best Ensemble Award. They they gave it to Carnage. Margaret finished number two, and I just have to question your choices when these are the decisions that you are making. Yeah. If there's um, a movie that you should be nominating for two performances that year in the uh, Golden Globe musical or comedy category, it's Bridesmaids. Like, yeah. Michelle Williams wins this Golden Globe because Marilyn Monroe sings <sighs> in one scene. It's one of the um, more fraudulent. We talk about, we just like literally minutes ago talked about how the Golden Globes did right by. Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara's performances in Carol in uh, the Danish Girl and Carol, respectively, putting them in lead. And sometimes, like they're they're good about categories, and sometimes they're just incredibly shameless. Big example being My Week with Marilyn being counted as a musical, which Jesus H. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and then you have Kristen Wiig nominated for Bridesmaids and. Uh, my like by a long shot pile is Charlize Theron uh, nominated young for adult. young adult. I know again some really good nominations and some really really terrible ones. Um, yeah, is there any? Let me let me dip into my uh, little notebook. What did I write? To, oh, we didn't talk about John C. Riley at all. So I, I just wrote down great moments in John C. Riley miscasting Carnage, and we need to talk about Kevin happening in adjacent years. He's incredibly <laughs> miscast in both of those roles. Like and. It's not fatal to we need to talk about Kevin, but I think it is part of what is fatal to uh, Carnage. And it just every I just wanted to see James Gandolfini in that role so, so, so much. And he's just not right for it. We talked about that a little bit. Um, You said you had some thoughts on uh, the changing of I mentioned that it, it's Brooklyn Bridge Park in the film. It is Cobble Hill Park in uh the play, which I do think, again, a small difference that I think does communicate a little bit it's more. It's a lot of small differences that make this way less precise, way less interesting, way less funny, and way less like cutting of a movie. This isn't the same translation as the one that you'll see on an American stage. I get the translator's name that it shows up in the credits but it's not christopher hampton the broadway version the one that you will get like if you go and buy a samuel french version of this you'll get the christopher hampton text if you're getting the um american translation um or the british translation too um and it's just like Christopher Hampton clearly knows what he is doing probably worked very closely with Yasmina Reza but these it's just like small touches to the language like throughout this movie there were so many lines i was like that's not exactly how it was in the show yeah that's not the that's not where that line hit that's not you know and it makes a difference i think especially when you have something that's not originally an english language text for the translation to like really kind of pack that punch of like being funny being this kind of wild farce like yeah it needs a level of precision that this movie just doesn't have. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, I so <laughs> I wrote down some very realistic barfing. I think if one thing we can give the film credit for is that barf, barf looks is, up, is upsetting. It's so upsetting. It's so chunky. It's so much like and it like I love the idea of an apples and pears cobbler and like not anymore now. That's like, also changed. I yeah. think it's a clafuti in the stage show. Oh, I think which you're is right. Just, like. Yes, that's 
that is one of the key points yes. of like precision makes this less funny because like these four uppity like wealthy people half of whom try to pretend that they're not that person it is funnier when they keep saying clafuti yes, a million times yes, it is. than it is when they're saying cobbler. Well, and they try times. they try to recapture that a little with how much Jodie Foster keeps talking about the art book that got barfed on. That got and by the way, if the barfing wasn't enough, watching Jodie Foster and John C. Riley like sop up <laughs> this barf. chunky barf with like clots and whatever and try to clean off the papers and then spray cologne over everything and then hair dryer it to try and fix the pages. And it's just like, it's so effectively gross. It's the only time in the movie that I feel any kind of like active reaction to what's happening in the, in a way that I feel like I'm supposed to. And uh, like naturally the one thing it does well is, is, is barfing. So, okay. Uh, I also wrote down, um, the Venus and fur of it all, because uh, after I'm trying to remember what year it was like 2014, maybe uh, a few years after carnage, uh, Roman Polanski did another film adaptation of a Broadway play that I very much liked, which was the David Ives play Venus and fur. And I just refused to seek it out. I did not want Venus and fur. First of all, I did not want to have the letdown that I had from Gone of Carnage to Carnage in uh, Venus and Fur, which is a uh, play that I loved very much. Nina Arianda's role, I think, is untouchable in that. I think she's so incredible. But the other thing is, the subject matter of Venus and Fur is very, very much sexual politics uh, and, you know, sort of... And he cast his wife. And he um, cast his wife. And... <sighs> I didn't want any part of that, and so absolutely I not. I think avoided. it barely got released in the states. It, yeah, no, I would have had to really like seek it out to find it, um, and I didn't want to do that. So, lesson learned: fool me once, shame on you. It's no, from me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, anything else that you wanted to say before we move into the IMDb game? No, let's move into the IMDb game. All right, why don't you tell us what that is? So, guys, every episode we end our uh, well, we end our episodes <laughs> with uh, the IMDb game, where we challenge each other to guess the top four titles that IMDb says the performer is most known for. Uh, if there are any titles that are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. But after two wrong guesses, we'll get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free for all of hints. That's the IMDb game. Huzzah! Yes. All right. So, Chris, would you like to? quiz me or get quizzed i think rather than uh barfing on you i'm <laughs> going to give you a cobbler so i'm going to give to you first all right week. let's hear it okay so for your imdb game i did not see any other avenue i can go other than this performer who was in god of carnage both in london and on broadway was nominated a against God of Carnage when Martha Gay Harden won, and also was Oscar-nominated the year that we're talking about. 
Do you know who I am giving you? No, but I just want to give you a hard time for saying Martha Gay Harden, and I think it's because you've watched the Snyder Cut a billion times this God, week. That is what I'm going to chalk it I'm up I'm just to. talking too fast. I'm trying to get to the end point. You know who I'm... I, I've already talked about how much I love Marsha Gay. Wait, so she was up against Harriet Walter. I, I, I fumble my words. Oh, it's Janet McTeer. Janet McTeer from uh, Mary Stewart. Janet McTeer. I love Janet McTeer. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to give you too much of a hard time, but I, I thought the Martha connection Yeah, I mean, I'm a... sure uh, 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 a listener might have as well. <laughs> I, I, I get excited and I fumble my words. Leave me alone. Janet McTeer. We love her. Yeah. Any television? Um, No. One of these is... Mm, it's not... It's technically a voiceover, but it is not an animated movie. She narrates one of the okay. movies in her known for. All right. Is one of them Albert Nobbs? Albert Nobbs. Oscar nominated for Albert Nobbs. The scene where she pulls down her shirt and shows off her boobs is... Shows off her knobs. Just just exquisite knockers, I will say. Um, well done. Well done, Janet, there. Um, all right. Is the other Oscar nomination in her uh, on her filmography in there? Is it Tumbleweeds? Tumbleweeds. Yes. All right. So we've gotten past that. Now the difficult ones. No television. One of them is a narrator. What would she have narrated? Janet McTeer. I'm imagining it's something British. I feel like I'm not going too much out on a limb for that. I really can't give you hints at the very least until you get something wrong. Okay. No, I agree with that. All right. Other things that Janet McTeer is in. I can only think of television things at this point. Um, She, oh wait, she was in something I saw recently, I think. Uh... What would it have been? Oh, you know what it is, though. Speaking of Kate Winslet uh, in the Divergent movies, she's in one of the Divergent movies also. And I'm going to guess... Well, I never saw Allegiant, so I'm going to guess Insurgent. She's in Allegiant, but Damn it's it! not okay. in her known form. It's not in her known form. Okay. Oh, wait, she is an insurgent, too. See, okay. here's another thing about this goddamn uh, entirely scrubbed from the face of the Earth series. The insurgent is technically titled the Divergent series. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. They dumped Allegiant so much that, like, you know what? We're just going to call it Allegiant. <laughs> um, okay, I believe she is in... That Emma Thompson film, Carrington, from, like, 94. Um, well, it is not in her known for, but I will look and see if she is in Carrington. She indeed is from 1995 Carrington, but that is your two wrong guesses. Okay. Your years are 2014 and 2016. Okay. I will help you out and say that her narration is 2014, and it is, to answer your previous question, not British. Okay. Okay. Um, 2014, not British, voiceover. 
And it's not an animated film that she's voicing over, right? It's a live action. It's not an animated film, but it has, uh, shall we say, animated origins. Animated origins. (laughs) Please welcome to the stage. (laughs) Okay. Um, So was it originally, it was originally an animated film, and then it got a live action remake. So it's probably Disney. In 2014. Maleficent. She narrates Maleficent. I don't think I knew that. That's amazing. Okay. You, who can always catch a voiceover actor in I know. didn't catch that as Jane I know. All right. Okay, so 2016, this is an adaptation. I'm sure that the book has never left the shelves of Target for a decade. <laughs> oh, God. You can go into probably any Target in America right now and buy this book. Is it like an Oprah style, like Oprah's book club style? Would it have been in the Oprah's book club in the nineties? No, but it's definitely read by like it's a it's a romance novel. It's a romance novel. Twenty sixteen. Is she like one of the romances? Is it like an older person romance, or is she like the mother? No, she is not the lead love interest. She's not the lead love interest. It is definite. The two leads are definitely people that uh, come from franchises, perhaps one of them not in movies, um, but that people have tried to make movie stars. And these are like, at this point, they are like C list romantic leads at this point. All right. Television franchise, Law and Order. No. Maybe franchise isn't the right word for this television show. Okay. But it's like a big television show. Yes. Game of Thrones. Yes. Sophie Turner. No. Amelia Clark. Oh, oh, oh. Is it the one where one of them is paralyzed? Or die. Do you have a title for me? Wait, I'll get it. I'll get it. Because I, I I, didn't see this movie, but I definitely saw this trailer a bunch. It's her, and it's I like... I hated this movie. It's not Sam Riley. It's, um... It is a Sam. Claflin. Yes. Amelia Clark, Sam Claflin. He's paralyzed, or she's yes. paralyzed? He is. Janet McTeer is his mother, I believe. It's like... It's one of those, it's like, it's not the you and the I, but it's one of those, it's just like, um, um, like, uh, God, what is it? It's, um. The author is Jojo Moyes. Yeah, I don't know who that is. I don't, I was not familiar with this book as like a thing until I, I saw that it was a movie. Oh, it's called, um, uh, it's Me Before You. Me before you. Jesus. Criminy. Okay. Hated that movie. I did not see it, but I believe it. I believe that you hated it. Okay. <laughs> Janet McTeer is challenging. I like that. Okay. All right. For you, we talked briefly about uh, Roman Polanski having a really good success in 2010 with a film called The Ghost Rider, uh, which got... I don't think it got a major nomination anywhere, but I think it showed up on a bunch of like top 10 lists. 
and sort of, you know, got little minor, uh, you know, things here or there. But uh, that starred Pierce Brosnan and Ewan McGregor. And the female star of that film is Miss Olivia Williams. Ah, uh, yes. Great British Lit- actress Olivia Williams. We both went British star actresses. Of- yes, we did. Um, star of current uh, Best Picture nominee, The Faja. Oh, she's in The Faja. She is the fa- She Well, she's not the <laughs> she's Faja. She's not the Faja. She's in the Faja. Have okay. you seen the Faja yet? Not yet, but now that it's available on oh, VOD, okay. I then I, I, I won't go into too much detail about her role in the Faja. Is she imaginary? Um, she's imaginary. I'm not, I'm not I knew it. About it. All right. Okay. I'm not, not talking. No, I'm not telling you what's happening. All right. Give me, give me, uh, give me Olivia Williams is known for. I mean, you primed her up with the Ghost Rider. She actually won like critics' prizes, and I think was like. BAFTA nominated for that movie, so I am actually going to guess that one. You are correct. She won. Okay. Um, let's see, what did she win for the Ghost Rider? Da, 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 da. She was a nominee at the IndieWire Critics Poll. She won the London Film Critics Circle Award. She was a runner-up at the Los Angeles Film Critics Circle. She won the National Society of Film Critics. Uh, uh, for that and yeah, National Society and London. All right, three cool. more. Um, obviously, the Sixth Sense. Obviously, the Sixth Sense. There. Speaking of characters um, who are not there, <laughs> not her, but uh, obviously. Rushmore. Rushmore. She's so good in Rushmore. That's a very crucial role that she uh, she plays just right. She is the we woman talk about caught Bill in Murray, between. Uh, getting snubbed for that movie. I feel like we should have the same conversation about her. Yes. Um, we talked about her in Hyde Park on Hudson. I feel like while she maybe didn't have like critics' prizes or anything, we definitely were predicting her for that movie before people saw it. So I'm going to guess Hyde Park on Hudson. In her role as Eleanor Roosevelt, not uh, one of her known for. Damn. I would have loved you almost, to have gotten a perfect score. You almost ran the table. Yes. Okay. One strike. Okay. I do feel the pressure to get this without any hints. Um, okay. Trying to think of what else she was in. She was also in Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars. Ugh. Not her, but um, that movie. She definitely gets what that movie is doing, and I remember liking her in that movie. <laughs> Didn't that show up for somebody? I feel like it showed up for like Julianne Moore. I'm gonna guess that movie. Ah, uh, no, not Maps to the Stars. Sorry, two strikes. Now you get a Damn. hint. Your hint is 2009. Okay. What was British in 2009? It's a good avenue to go down. What are the British? It was her only film from 2009. She's a teacher in an education, and she's just like everybody else who has a scene or two in that movie. She's great. Is it an education? It is an education. Best Picture nominee. Yeah. An education. Very good. Carrie Mulligan's other Oscar nomination. Well done. Good job. 
Thank you very much. Well, we went uh, incredibly long on an 80-minute movie, which I love for us. So uh, thank you for uh, joining this conversation with us. But that is our episode. If you want more This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, tell the people where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, puking and destroying ah! tulips or whatever those were, um, at Chris V. File, that's F-E-I-L, also on Letterboxd under the same name, uh, Baking uh, Cobblers. You know what I call that? That is the real tulip fever. Um, you can find me baking uh, Tom McCarthy's The Cobbler. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, uh, burn burn that one in the oven. Burn Tom McCarthy's The Cobbler in the oven. I've never seen that movie. I can't even talk about it. All right. Neither have I. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the exact same way. This episode is supported in part by Gateway Film Center, a nonprofit cinema committed to supporting storytellers. Authentic stories can inspire new ideas, entertain, push boundaries, spark new levels of empathy, and advance social change. To learn more about their program and plan your visit for award season weekend, please visit gatewayfilmcenter.org. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so spray some cologne and let your barfed-on art books dry while you write something nice about us, won't you? That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz.